Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Find the Bill of Rights on leadersa.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Good morning. I'm Katie standing in for Reedy today. She's not feeling well, and I'm sure she's going to really want to be here to chat to our naked, sci- our naked scientist today, Chris Smith. Good morning, uh, Chris, and welcome to you. Hello, Katie. What an unexpected pleasure. Yes, thank you. Well, hello. (laughs) An unexpected pleasure for me as well because I didn't think I'd be here this morning, but I am. Um, Very quickly, let me just tell you, Reedy's not well. Her throat... Um, is bothering her. She's lost her voice. In fact, she sent a tweet out this morning saying something along the lines of her throat is burning. So uh, I don't know if you have any quick good advice for her. <laughs> it's quite common, actually. It must have been a very hoarse tweet. Um, yes, it was. I of, think it there was. are lots of viruses that do this, and there are lots of them around, certainly in this country at this time of the year, um, and I suspect worldwide, really. Um, but the common causes of sore throat and a loss of voice are a family of viruses that called the para-influenza viruses, and they classically cause croup in kiddies. So when kids wake up in the middle of the night and they're all croupy and they're, they've got a sort of spasm in their throat and they can't seem to breathe properly, that's usually one of these para-influenza viruses, and there are at least four of them. There are, there are more than 300 different types of cold virus anyway, so it could be any one of 300 at least. And are these highly infectious? Because we had our morning show host off last week with the very, very same thing, and I'm thinking that uh, the one infected <laughs> the other. They are very infectious, actually. Um, the number of particles that you need to be exposed to to catch them is in the single figures, and the particles themselves are just 30 nanometers, so in other words, about one thirty thousandth of a millimeter across, and they drift around on the air in little droplets, so every time someone coughs or sneezes, you, you're splurging out this malignant miasma of infectivity, which hovers in the air, goes around on air currents. Uh, we all need to be very, very careful and sneeze well, into our elbows. You can breathe them in, and that's one way of getting it, because they land on your throat and they infect the cells at the back of the throat and then they replicate and hijack more cells, and before you know it, you've got a huge load of inflammation in one place. Also, when they land on surfaces, they can remain infectious on a surface for a little while. So if you come along and touch the surface where someone has sneezed or coughed earlier, you get the particles on your fingers. If you then bite your nails or you pick up your pen and then put your pen in your mouth, you can put the particles in that way and they can infect you via that route. Or worse still, some people might be prone to picking their nose, but yeah. nasal excavation, and you put the particles in that way. So the bottom line is Lovely. if you wash your hands regularly, wash your hands with soap and water, or you, I mean, the, the alcohol gels are not so good oh, against some viruses. Amen to so, that. But soap and water is very good. And if you do that regularly, it's actually a really good preventative. And handkerchiefs, if you sneeze into a handkerchief and then chuck it away, that's actually a really good way of, of mitigating the spread. So you can do your bit for mankind. Yes, and wash your hands. That is my pet yes, thing. Wash, wash your hands. That's the best. Wash your hands. hands, please. I once watched uh, um, an Oprah show of all things, in which she said that washing your hands for less than two minutes actually is ineffective. Is that true? I don't think there's any specific time limit on it. What we know about washing hands is that soap won't kill viruses and bacteria, but what it does do is it detaches them from the skin, and it does that by physically detaching them, knocking them off, but also it 
erodes or removes the oily layers and the sticky stuff on the skin that they tend to loiter in and also they tend to feed on. Now, that the two-minute business probably comes from the fact that if you give people some soap and water and they, they do a rush job, they'll probably miss lots of bits. Ah. So if you tell people to wash your hands for two minutes, it's likely that they will wash more thoroughly. If you are a good hand washer, and people who are good hand washers are people who work in hospital surgeries and in especially in operating theatres because they're trained where all the nooks and crannies are and a good technique to detach the bugs from their hands. So if you wash thoroughly, you will get rid of them. Now, Chris, I'm going to get into a lot of trouble because I'm going to be accused of monopolizing the conversation with you. These lines are going nuts, and I know lots of people want to get through to you to talk about various issues. 8830702 in Johannesburg, 4460567 in Cape Town. Before we get to the calls, I do know that you want to talk about probiotic bacteria, which can calm anxiety responses. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, you've probably seen adverts on television. You certainly see these things for sale in shops, these probiotic drinks. And they are live bacteria drinks, which are said to be beneficial to health by various routes. And they do appear to have some evidence to support that. They can calm down a sick stomach. They can also help elderly people not to get disturbed tummies if they take antibiotics, for example. But there's an, a really interesting paper this week. It's by researchers in Ireland at, at University College Cork. It's a guy called Javier Bravo and his colleagues. It's published in the journal PNAS. And actually, I've put a copy of this up on our website, nakedscientist.com slash news, if anyone wants to read up on it. But what they've done is to take some mice and they infect them or they, they feed them lactobacillus rhamnosus, which is one of these probiotics that you find in these yogurt drinks. And then they did the unusual thing of actually looking at how the mice behave afterwards. And these mice show much lower levels of stress. They have low levels of stress hormones in their bloodstream. They behave in a less stressed way when you put them in certain tasks or environments. But also, really interestingly, when they looked in their brains, they found that they had a change in their nerve transmitter chemistry, the chemicals that nerve cells use to talk to each other. They looked at one in particular called GABA, which is an inhibitory nerve transmitter. It calms down nerves. And the levels of that were changing dramatically in the same parts of the brain that are linked to stress and depression in these mice. Oh, how interesting. And, uh, well, when they then cut the nerves that go between the brain and the gut, a nerve called the vagus nerve, which is the main connection between the intestines and the brain, all these effects went away. So it strongly suggests that these probiotic bacteria change the environment in your intestine in some way. They then modulate or have a conversation with the immune system and perhaps other cells in the wall of the gut which then signal a change in the environment to nerve cells there, which then tell the brain things have changed, and that changes brain chemistry. So it appears that there is a brain-modifying effect of having the right bacteria in your gut. So you are quite literally what you eat. We are what we eat. That's a very, very interesting uh, study. Uh, let's chat to Albert and Isando. Albert? Hello. Do you have a question for the naked scientist? Yes. Go for it. Where is the energy coming from? to orbit the electrons around the atom. <laughs> Hello, Albert. Um, well, this is the interesting thing, because if, if electrons really were orbiting in that sense, then they would need some kind of energy because they just fall into the nucleus. So that's why we don't think of electrons as particles. We think of them as a wave, and you have this wave function. And the idea is that um, the electron has a probability of being at some point around the atom at any point in time, but we don't know exactly where. And if we did know exactly where, then um, it, it would break lots of equations. So the bottom line is that electrons can be conveniently thought of as particles uh, under certain circumstances, but waves under other circumstances. And if you think of them as waves, then the problem goes away. Okay, hope that helps you, Albert. Uh, Bernie in Paro. Hello. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me about uh, a weight in a vehicle. For instance, uh, with a lift, if you get into a lift and it's overloaded, it doesn't move until someone gets out of the lift. 
Now, we have a problem in this country, and I think all over the world, if, if a vehicle's overloaded, obviously the brakes, you know, fail and that sort of thing, because, I mean, with, with the overloading, uh, you know, can't stop and results in a lot of deaths. Now, is it possible for a mechanical engineer or a manufacturer to insert something into a vehicle that will, uh, uh, you know, eliminate this sort of possibility? In other words, won't move unless someone gets out of the vehicle. I suppose it's possible. Um, it's not that challenging from an engineering point of view for a vehicle to be able to register how much load is being placed on it. Um, certainly, there was a study which was done in the last few years by police officers and scientists teaming up, and they were using the Doppler effect in order to measure the workload on an engine. So let me explain what I mean. When a vehicle comes along the road, say it's a siren vehicle like a police car or a fire engine, you notice that the sound of it changes as it comes towards you and then goes away. The sound gets higher and higher as it comes towards you, and then the sound pitched goes lower and lower as it goes away again. So in other words, you can use that as a register of speed. And what they were doing was working out if a vehicle goes up a hill, how hard the engine's working versus how long it takes to do the hill and all that kind of thing. And they were using that to calculate how much load the vehicle must be under so they could begin to, to estimate overloaded vehicles. I haven't seen it catch on as a technology. I think it was more just a study. But that's one other way of remotely monitoring these things. But I think probably um, if you had something built in, like some kind of sensor system which could monitor load, that would be the best way of doing it. It would be tricky, though, because obviously vehicles, when they go over humps and bumps, the cargo would bounce up and down transiently, and that could outwit the sensor, or it could fool the sensor into thinking transiently things were too heavy. So you'd have to program it to, to do an average reading, for example, but I don't think it's mechanically too difficult to do, in the same way that people are now talking about having breathalyzers built into cars so that it won't let you drive anywhere unless you provide a breath sample and you're clear of alcohol. I have a very, very interesting question here. It says, does it take seven or so years for pepper of any kind to exit your system, specifically the liver, kidney, or colon? Thank you for that, Mary. Do you have an answer for Mary, Chris? Uh, I don't think that there's any evidence that, that things take necessarily seven years as opposed to 70 years. Everything you eat goes into your body and gets dismantled into individual atoms or molecules, which are then rearranged to make new molecules, and some of those may then end up being integrated into your tissues for the rest of your life, whereas others may be broken down and exit the body the same day. So it's not so true. It will depend on what sort of tissue you're talking about. And, and therefore, if you, if you take a, a good example, when you're developing inside your mother, your nervous system, your brain, is formed of nerve cells, and the nerve cells that form when you're growing inside your mother are the nerve cells that you will die with 70 to 100 years later. So in other words, the molecules that make up the DNA in those nerve cells and other bits of those cells will be derived from your mother eating something when she's pregnant and they will remain in your body for those 100 plus <laughs> years. And then after you die, the atoms and the um, components that make up your bones, the calcium and the phosphate groups and things in your bones, they might be there for thousands of years, as we know, when we dig up ancient skeletons in archaeological sites. Wow, how fascinating. 8830702446 Get your questions in for the Naked Scientist. You can also SMS us on 31702 or 31567. Is it July in Orange Grove? Julie. Oh, sorry, Julie. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I just wanted to find out, my children, four years old, years old get croup um, a few times a year. And the doctors often say that it's viral, you don't need an antibiotic. Is this true? Hello, Julie. Um, Hi. I think probably they're suffering from the same thing that Reedy's got. We were talking about this as a, a para-influenza virus. 
and it causes what's known medically as laryngotracheobronchitis. In other words, you've got inflammation and swelling and edema of the larynx, the voice box, and the throat, and the bronchi, the biggest airways. And this causes laryngospasm. You get that croupy, whooping cough. It's not whooping cough, but it's a whooping sound of cough. And every time they breathe in, they get a, a sort of long, inspiratory noise. And 80 to 90% of upper respiratory tract infections are always viral. In other words, they won't respond to antibiotics. That said, sometimes if you have a bad, a bad attack of a virus, it can damage the airways, and this makes you more prone to then developing a bacterial infection afterwards. So you're not out of the woods until all the symptoms go, and if a virus goes on for more than a week or so, it's possible you could have a bit of a bacterial infection that's gone in on top of it, and therefore you might need some antibiotics under certain circumstances. So it's not a black and white situation. Okay, I hope that answers your question, Julie. Rory in Bryanston, hi. Hi, hi, Chris. Um, Chris, I've, um, I've had a number of people trying to sell me a home water system, and uh, the, the sort of argument they used to try and convince me is they take tap water and they, they electrolysize it, uh, I think with an iron and an aluminium uh, cathode and anode, and it, it turns slimy green. C- can you maybe explain the chemistry behind that? Um, is it one of these... Uh silver things where they do electrolysis in the water and it puts silver ions into the water. Um, they, they, they didn't explain the exactly what it's putting into the water. All they did was they took a, a sample of tap water and they put two, yeah. um, two, two electrodes into the water um, and, and electrolysized it and after a while you know, there's a lot of fizzing going on and it turns slimy green. Yes, um, if it's green, it's, I mean there's a number of compounds that are green coloured and there's two metals that tend to form green coloured compounds simply one of them is copper and one is iron. And so if one of the electrodes, specifically the anode, the, the positive electrode was an iron or yes. a copper electrode, then it will cause that electrode to donate copper ions into the solution. In other words, the copper will dissolve and it will then form a copper compound or an iron compound in the solution, which has a green color attached to it. Um, I okay. wouldn't drink that if I was you. <laughs> no, um, in fact, if you, if you want to sort of recreate the effect, if you take some copper coins and put them in vinegar and whiz them around for a little bit, you'll notice that A, they emerge all shiny later, but the solution will turn quite green. And if you then evaporate off the liquid, you'll get some nice green crystals, and that will be copper acetate. I wouldn't eat them. <laughs> okay, don't eat them, don't drink them. Don't drink that water there, Rory. Thanks very much for your call. George in Edenville. Hi, um... About two years ago, or some years ago, I heard that they, uh, on the radio that they finally isolated the terrible asthma virus. And since then, I've heard nothing. Haven't, why couldn't they then use this uh, virus to do some experimentation to try and cure asthma? Hello, George. Um, well, two things, really, with this. You're right that there are viruses that are linked to asthma. And the ones I know about are rhinoviruses. In other words, they're viruses that live up your nose, there's more than about 80 members of the rhinovirus family and a few of them have been associated, if you catch them when you're very little, with a higher risk of having Alzheimer's when you, Alzheimer's, asthma when you grow up. Whether that's cause or effect, we don't know. Maybe people who are more prone to getting asthma later are more prone to getting bad rhinovirus infections. We don't know. It's just an association. So that needs looking into and people are pursuing that. But for the most part, asthma is an allergic reaction. Your airways are sensitive to things that you breathe in. So inhaled allergen, things you can react to, bind onto a special class of antibody called an IgE antibody in the airway. 
and this IgE antibody causes the release of inflammatory chemicals in the airways, causing the airways to swell and to constrict, and you also then get other immune cells moving in, making the problem worse and further inflaming the airways. And because those allergens are always around you in the environment, the inflammation never really goes away, so you always have a tight chest and wheeziness. What exactly initiates that allergy in the first place, people are unsure about, but there is also an association with using too many antibiotics. There's evidence that exposure to broad spectrum, in other words, domestos-type antibiotics, in very young age, so babies under the age of one exposed to big doses of antibiotics, can have a higher risk in life of allergy and asthma and diarrheal illnesses. But then you have to compensate by saying, well, we wouldn't give babies big doses of antibiotics for nothing, so it's better to be alive and have asthma than to die of overwhelming disease through preventing asthma later mm. but not giving the antibiotics, if you see what I mean. So are there any the studies, moment, Chris, don't know the answer. Are there any studies which indicate how much antibiotics would, would, would have that adverse effect later on in life? I know you're just saying a broad spectrum, but how much? Is it once a year, twice a year? Is it four times a year? There are lots of studies that have done what are called association analysis. So in other words, what you do is you take a big group of people and you ask how many doses of antibiotics have you had at what age and have you now got asthma or hay fever, rhinitis or diarrheal illnesses, that kind of thing. And you look for an association. So it's not causal. You don't put people into one group and say, right, you're going to have antibiotics and the other group, you're going to get placebo, which would be a better way of doing it, but not ethical. So we can only draw associations. We can't prove that one causes the other at the moment. But there's very strong evidence linking a number of uh, early life experiences with a higher risk later of asthma and other allergies. These include being, being born by cesarean or being born vaginally. If you have a cesarean section, babies born via that route are much more likely compared with babies born vaginally to have allergies and asthma and other diarrheal diseases uh, after they're born compared with babies born the normal way probably because of the bacteria that the babies pick up from their mother on the way out of the body the normal way those those bacteria appear to be protective then there's the question of antibiotics and it looks like if you have a couple of doses of broad spectrum antibiotics under the age of six months you have up to a 20-fold increased risk of getting diseases like asthma and rhinitis later in life. Well, George, I certainly hope that answers your question. You're listening to Talk Radio 702567 Cape Talk. We're talking to the Naked Scientists. We're taking your questions, anything you want to know. And you've got an interesting question because I don't know what RDF means. Okay. Uh, so good morning, Kate and Chris. <laughs> Thanks for taking the call. I'm going to try and make it quickly. Please. I know what RLS means, right? And I'll tell you why I want to know what RDS means. It's some time ago, I broke my wrist, the ulna and the radius, right? Okay. <clears throat> Long story short, it's all sorted out. But after that, I went back to him and about two months afterwards, and I said to him, listen, something is not right here. I did not break my arm. I broke my wrist. Okay? And I said, now, why is it when my arm is at the side? And I pick it up slightly. I get a pain, not a pain isn't a pain, you know, a pain, sort of I'm going just up into the top of my, to, to the top of the arm. And he laughed, and I said to him, no, 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 come, what? What are you laughing? He said to me, you okay. have now just described the perfect, perfect symptoms of RDS. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, reflex, dystophobia, sympathetic. And then I thought, no, no, I said, no, you've got me. And I thought, well, I didn't want to act you stupid. So I came home, and the nursing sister said to me, you have got sympathetic nerves in your arm. 
All right, let's see what Chris has to tell us. Thanks, Anne. That seems very, Hello, very strange. Anne. Yes, um, it's, it's actually reflex sympathetic dystrophy, RSD, oh. otherwise known as pseudex atrophy. And this is very common. And when people get injuries, for some reason, and in some people, and often associated with orthopedic injuries, you get a subsequent pain syndrome developing. It would appear that when you do the injury, you damage sympathetic nerves, which are part of your autonomic nervous system. The blood vessel control is under sympathetic control. Sweating is under sympathetic control. In other words, it's neurological function that you don't have to worry about. Your, your unconscious, subconscious bit of your brain worries about that for you. If you injure those nerves, though, with things like wrist fracture, you can then get a subsequent pain state in the affected body area. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear to be very easy to treat. And it also tends to hang around for a very long time, sometimes permanently. There are lots of related syndromes. One of them is called causalgia. And people who suffer terrible injuries in the war, for example, then develop excruciating pain in the injured body part. And yes, Anne, you're exactly right. You've got a perfect case example of pseudex atrophy or reflex sympathetic okay. dystrophy. Chris, I've got two questions here. I don't know if you've been asked this on Reedy's show before. Two people want to know, why are you called the naked scientist? Well, you see, the benefit of having the perfect face for radio is that I can also sit here wearing nothing and no one would know. <laughs> Actually, I'm not wearing nothing because I'm in the hospital today, which is why I'm talking to you on the phone, because um, I'm on medical duty today. Um, or I will be shortly. Yes. Um, but the, the reason we came up with the name Naked Scientist, apart from shameless self-promotion and, and advertising, because everyone knows that sex always sells, was actually it's the science that's naked. We wanted to convey the idea of there's no barriers um, between the science, scientific message and people who want to understand uh, I love appreciate it. and enjoy the science as much as we do. Oh, very nice. Well, that certainly answers those questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to everybody. Lots of questions coming through. Mark, you've been on hold for a while, but maybe you can call in next week. Chris, thank you so much for your time, and uh, That's right, Casey. Thank good you luck in me. the hospital today. Thank you. Okay. okay have a nice day. You bye too. Bye. bye. That's Chris Smith. He is our naked scientist, and I just love that answer of why he is the naked, naked scientist.